You're tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, 3CR Digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Up next, we bring you more conversations from the Forum for Dwelling Justice, held at the Capitol Theatre here in Melbourne on Friday 26th of August. The Forum was organised by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research and supported by the International Journal of Housing Policy, the Renters and Housing Union and 3CR. Over the next few weeks, you'll hear discussions about the relationship between colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, racial violence and poverty and how we all have a role to play in building solidarity among movements. Today, we'll hear from Natalie Ironfield, Debbie Kilroy, Ruj Ahmedi, Idil Ali and Wit Gori discussing the carceral logics that drive dispossession and displacement on this continent. Up first, we'll hear the MC, Natalie Einfield, introducing the panel. So as a diary person, I am a guest on this country. So I want to start by acknowledging the unceded lands of the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nation. I want to acknowledge their continued sovereignty um, and resistance to processes of colonisation, which are ongoing. Um, and I want to pay my respects to Wurundjeri elders, past and present. Who am I? My name is Natalie. I am a PhD student um, and higher degree research fellow at the University of Melbourne, um, where I research and teach on abolition um, and the violence of criminology policing and incarceration. Um, I'm feeling a little bit nervous. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> There's a lot of people here. Um, so I just want to kind of name that. Um, and I want to thank Senator Thorpe and my sis, Linda Kennedy, who I haven't seen in such a long time. It's so nice to see you um, for kicking off this event. I think you really pointed to some important themes. Um, one that I think stands out is that there's no housing justice without um, First Nations justice and land back must be central to any sort of fight for housing justice um, all across this continent. So I'm really honoured um, to be facilitating this yarn today with these amazing people um, who are all doing, I think, really important abolitionist work in the community. Um, so I'm joined here today by Deb Kilroy, uh, Wit Gori, Idil Ali and Ruja Mehdi. Um, UN woman Ani Vicky Roach was also meant to join us today, um, but unfortunately she had to pull out for personal reasons. And it would have been really wonderful to have her on this panel. Obviously she has lived experience of incarceration and also to hear her speak about the Homes Not Prisons campaign. I encourage you all to go and have a look at the work that they're doing uh, around trying to stop the expansion of Dame Phyllis Frost prison um, and re relocate that money to um, a housing first campaign for criminalised women and their children. So over the next hour, we're going to have a conversation about the carceral logics uh, that drive dispossession and displacement on this continent and how the state uses systems of surveillance, policing and imprisonment as solutions to the housing crisis. So we're also going to speak to how the struggle for housing justice um, is intimately connected to the struggle for abolition, um, because abolition is about a lot more than just getting rid of cages. It's about drastically changing the society that we live in. 
So how this is going to run, each panelist is going to speak for about five minutes before we have um, a discussion together about some other topics. So I'm going to hand over to Deb uh, in a second, who's going to speak about abolition and how housing justice is at the core of um, the abolitionist movement. She's also going to touch on how criminalized, how the criminalized community are affected by housing injustice. Uh, Deb is going to hand over to Rouge, who is going to talk about building communities of solidarity using, using functional and deep organizing um, and some lessons from her experience of doing that, including the ways that whiteness interferes with the opportunity for people of color to engage politically. Rouge is going to hand over to Idol. Um, who's going to speak to the criminalisation and policing of communities who are housed uh, by the government and also talk about the conditions prior, during and post the hard lockdown um, and how surveillance and distribution of, distributions of resources is used to stifle resistance. And finally, we're going to hear from Wit, um, who's going to speak to the overlap between the fight for housing justice, abolition and trans liberation. And Wit's going to unpack the ways in which trans and gender diverse people who are criminalised sit within multiple intersections of oppression um, and as a result are disproportionately impacted by homelessness and housing instability, uh, which further entrenches the trans and gender diverse community within the prison industrial complex. So I'm going to head, hand over to you, Debbie. Okay, oh, that's on. Thank you. Um, before I begin, I also want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land of where we gather here today. I reside in Mianjin and I want to pay my respects to elders past and present, both here and where I reside as a white colonial settler. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge um, all the women and girls and others who are languishing across this uh, so-called country called Australia that are in cages um, right now. It's two o'clock in the afternoon, people would have been woken up at 6am if they were lucky enough to have a visit with family. And I say lucky because not many um, people have contact with their families anymore considering the COVID pandemic. Um, but they would have endured state violence or what we call sexual assault through strip searching. Um, and it's one of the most horrific, traumatic um, things that can be perpetrated you in, in, while you're in a cage in a prison in this country. Um, however, legislation across most jurisdictions talks about doing dignified strip searching, and there's no such thing. Um, what they mean by dignified is that when you take your top half of your clothes off, you can keep your pants on, and when they may give you a bra buck, and then you can t you have to take the bottom half of your clothes off and squat and cough and hand over your um, tampon or pad if you're menstruating. Um, so it's it's uh, sexual assault by the state, and I know that many people. Um, would have experienced that today across our prison system. Um, I know you talked about Vicky not being here. I suppose what I want to um, say right now is um, I'm going to read from a paper that um, Vicky Roach, Yuan, powerful, strong woman, my sister, and Tabitha Lean, um, who's a Gunjamara woman, um, strong, powerful black woman. Um, we're on the national network of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women and girls across this country. And so they can't be here. Vicky can't be here at the moment, and Tabitha is tethered still to the castle state. So we have put some words down here. So I am going to read that. I want both Vicky and um, Tabitha here with us today because they can't travel. 
So the struggle for housing justice must be at the core an abolitionist fight and one that is led by those that are the most marginalised and affected by the struggle because housing precarity is both a class and race war. I want to talk to you about the criminalised community and how we are affected by housing injustice because, enough, because housing or lack of is very much at the core of injustice for criminalised women and girls and others. Every single day there are people languishing in prison because of the housing crisis. Right now there are women sitting in cages who have been approved release from prison but cannot be released until suitable housing deemed by the state is found. They will sit and they will be forced to wait days, weeks and many months and sometimes years until a house can be found. And it will likely not be found in the decimated public housing system, but by their tired family who more often than not have to front the money to pay the rent to hold the property while corrections do their checks on the premises. And sometimes the family are forced to put the lease of the property in their own names because the landlord will not rent to someone newly released from prison. Those that don't have strong family support um, will continue to languish in cages. There are also women who are on parole who lose their private rental through no fault of their own and are breached by the parole board for not maintaining suitable accommodation and um, then return to prison only to lose their freedom and often their children in the process. There are also women who are released from prison into unsuitable and unsafe housing spaces run by support agencies, predominantly housing newly released men where they are placed in vulnerable situations and isolated from family and friends due to the strict no visitor policies of these accommodation spaces. And then there are the women who struggle to find a rental while they are on home detention because no landlord in this current rental climate is going to take the chance on someone still tethered to the carceral system. The state specifically targets those unable to secure housing due to policies crafted by the very state to maintain the prison industrial complex. Therefore, the nexus of carcerality, property and racial capitalism is made evident through the ways that those who are homeless and unable to pay rent are criminalised, the ways people are evicted and excluded from the housing market and the way the carceral state depends on the reproduction of housing precarity and racial dispossession for its endurance. The reality for the criminalised community is that we are always overlooked in housing policy because we are the disposable population group despite being one of the most marginalised groups to houselessness and therefore recriminalisation. This is because the criminalised are the undeserving housing customer. We aren't sad, not sorry cases worthy of sympathy or assistance in the eyes of the state or the community. We have done things that people don't like. We have been criminalised and we are being punished and it would appear that stripping us of all our rights, including those fundamental to our survival, being shelter, is one of the ways you choose to punish us. So let's not pretend the housing system hasn't been architected in this cruel, unjust and inequitable way. The housing market is politically and socially and economically engineered to keep certain people out of it. Housing is absolutely Im implicated in the schema of racialized, gendered social control and racial capitalism and the carceral state abound in the project of maintaining house inequality on stolen Aboriginal land. Abolitionists understand that a crucial element of housing justice must be that every person has the right to a safe place to call home. 
We understand that certain population groups, including the criminalised and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, have systematically been excluded and exploited out of opportunities of home ownership. It is in the fight for housing justice that we are able to draw attention to the long-standing inequities and discrimination in all areas of housing, from housing finance to public housing, policy making and planning. And through abolition, we are able to identify the conditions necessary to achieve a goal of housing justice. We can determine which structures must be dismantled, fortified or newly constructed. Abolition provides us a space to dream collectively about how we can create abundant quality, affordable housing in amenity rich areas. It enables us to consider how we can emphasise housing stability, imagining a world in which no one faces the threat of losing their home. We can ensure that housing is decommodified and universally available, and together we can rescind paternalistic requirements for shelter services while we work to change the conditions which create the need for those same services. Because ultimately, abolition is at the core, a building project, and we acknowledge that doing away with the punishment state will require us to invest in education, housing, healthcare and mental health services, as well as other social supports. Abolitionists like myself argue that resources should be directed towards those, these ends and away from institutions where reform has always failed. It is in doing this that we have a chance to uphold dignity, safety, privacy, personal and public health. Abolition enables us to create a movement which can articulate a vision for dignified housing beyond the confines of existing systems of social provision. We can create a space where anything is possible. And thank fuck for that, because what are we doing right now is only working for the masters and it is serving the very few, and this must end. So as the rents keep rising, so must we, and we must stand together as a collective because this war cannot be won by the few, it will only be victorious by the many. Thank you. Um, thank you, Deb. Um, my name is Ruja Mehdi. I'm a Kurdish woman from Iraq. Um, I was both a, um, a victim of colonization from my homelands, which led me to be on this country, but I'm also always acknowledging elders past and present here on Wurundjeri, um, Woi Wurrung and Boon Wurrung country um, as a beneficiary of colonization and as a settler. Um, and it's in this kind of duality or a often used word liminal space that I function. Um, and I'm really interested in how do you build communities around First Nations sovereignty? Um, and one of the kind of key questions I'm constantly asking myself and working towards is how do you build uh, movements for racial and economic justice uh, when whiteness is so suppressive in this context? And whenever you get an opportunity to build a liberatory framework, it instantly, the language um, and the energy is co-opted and diluted, um, not only by the capitalistic system, but also from um, the non-for-profit industrial complex, which I currently work in. There is very little oxygen for our movements. Um, so often people are relegated to the sidelines and having arguments about language and semantics only, um, rather than the material and structural experiences of racism. 
Um, my job has been involved bridging those gaps, um, translating between different communities, often communities of my own, um, refugee, migrant, LGBTI, communities of color, um, public housing residents, and others, First Nations and diaspora black communities. So how do you tell communities, especially those who have been victims of uh, colonization elsewhere, particularly um, you know, who are suddenly here and are being told that their new home they have found is not theirs and that their desire to negotiate with a colonial state in order to belong is an act of violence itself. Um, and that's the conversations that I often have in my uh, kind of more institutional um, roles as um, human rights and racial justice campaigners through various contexts. Um, I was uh, one of the key campaigners and organizers that spearheaded Color Code, which was a national um, racial justice movement for people of color and First Nations people. And uh, one of the things I learned through that process was the difficulty in penetrating communities of color to get them to engage politically when constantly they are relegated to their sidelines and also invisibilized in their own unique way. And how do you build those conversations to be, to open up and get people to think about how the incarceration they face, the over-policing, the lack of housing, the discrimination they face, the inability um, to go about their lives without the surveillance state, all of those things have a um, uh, origin story in the establishment of a penal colony and the ongoing um, displacement of First Nations people. And one of the most compelling and interesting things um, that I really realized was that in order for people to, they see that political engagement and it, whether it is through conversation or through structural means is often seen through a white lens. So what people of color uh, from migrant backgrounds often do, whether it's first, second, third generation, what they do is they don a kind of white exterior and a white voice before they answer a question about the political experiences in so-called Australia. And so one of the kind of uh, lessons I learned through a functional um, organizing um, approach is exchanging a way to support, you know, a way to support the um, their movements within a harmful racist system, but also remind them and um, allow them to embody and settle inside their own bodies that they could engage in the political conversation um, through their own voice, through their own experiences. And that's when solidarity is often built. So oftentimes you have to remind people, especially from from um, migrant backgrounds, who they actually are, and that they don't have to don the voice and the um, mask of whiteness in order to engage politically. And that supports their ability to start to understand and unpack um, colonization in this context and find community. Some of the things that I've done, and I've had the absolute pleasure of working alongside people like Wit in Idle and have watched Deb's incredible work through Sisters Inside, but one of the things that I've done or the things that felt more, uh, more uh, enabling and empowering is my work through communities that oftentimes you can't really write about. Um, and it is through those kind of relationships. And Idol and I will definitely touch on this, but one of it, it all culminated 
years and years of community building and relationship building all culminated uh, through a horrific crisis through the detention orders placed on the nine public housing towers through um, some of the most vicious stages of Victoria's COVID-19 <laughs> lockdowns. Um, and that was a really unique experience because through our art collectives, through showing up at each other's rallies, through building support, through building mutual aid networks, that moment of crisis really showed the absolute incredible network and community that we had built across people in public housing estates, from um, a diaspora African communities, through refugee communities, through First Nations communities, and we all gathered together to support one another. And that's a story that's not often told outside of an NFP response to that crisis. Um, and it all was one of the kind of key um, key uh, actors in that, but it wasn't just Idol and I, but it was that big community that we built. And sometimes what we think is that organizing in communities is so hard and difficult, and that relational work is difficult, messy, because sometimes it's deeply traumatized people trying to connect. But in those moments of crisis, all the work that you do, all the ways that you educate one each, each, um, each other and yourself, all the ways you hold each other accountable, can be activated um, and it's incredibly uh, moving and brilliant and um, something that is a lifelong pursuit. Thank you. Um, Idil Ali, I'd also like to acknowledge that we're on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and I'd like to pay respects to the elders past and present. I guess in having any of this type of dialogue we're talking about the fact that um, me and myself as a Somali woman, I'm on this land because of displacement, because of colonization elsewhere, because of three different colonizers, um, one of which we share with, with the sovereign people of this land. And when I thought about this panel, I thought about how every person here, I've had the opportunity to either um, benefit from their work or get to work with them. So I wanted to talk today about the criminalization and policing of communities in Gulf housing. Um, and the conditions prior and during um, and post the hard lockdown. I feel like the hard lockdown was a time that we saw a culmination of so many things that have happened in silos come together in one massive big way. So we saw how the media, um, how the media shaped how public were viewing what was happening. We saw how um, the how health and uh, medics, um, medical professionals and interacted with um, with our communities. We saw how our basically our landlords Department of Housing, which is now ironically changed names to Department of Fairness and Families um, <laughs> during like literally just after the hard lockdown, which is audacious. Um, and we saw how us as communities through the solidarity we built, how we responded and we didn't wait for our external response. So I guess one of the things I want to start with is the beginning of before the hard lockdown happened, what was the conditions and thinking about how gov housing is is and has been privatized for a long time now, um, how we've been seeing the selling of public land to private entities and how um, private housing has been built alongside government housing um, in a time that we have limited government housing, right? So already the waiting lists are well over 10 years to get public housing, and that's even when you're on priority listing. So what we found is that um, 
when COVID, when we first learned about COVID, that community members and community organizations reached out to DHHS and spoke to them about what type of things that we wanted in place in order to support our community. So we spoke about how we want hand sanitizers available, um, how we wanted communal spaces to be cleaned more regularly, how we wanted um, more access to masks for people who couldn't afford them and at a time that it was really difficult to access them. Um, and nothing happened. Um, from March, if not earlier, we were having dialogue and by July we were being locked up. So our communities um, were told that because of overcrowding and because of the potential and the high numbers of COVID cases that we would be um, not allowed, um, that we would not be allowed out of our houses for two weeks. Um, I should also place myself within that. I'm from Carlton, not from North Melbourne and Flemington where the hard lockdowns happened. So, um, part of my extended community, but I wasn't one of the people locked up. I was part of the response. So what happened was our communities were locked up. The way that we found out our communities were locked up by, by the police coming in um, from every direction. Most community members automatically thought some, we were under like we were under siege, that something um, horrific must have happened for the police to be coming from every side. Um, and we also acknowledged that something horrific was happening because the police were coming from every direction. So um, nobody watches, as far as I know, I don't watch. Do you guys watch the news on a Saturday afternoon? Yeah, but um, I have to. Yeah, you do. Yeah. <laughs> but, but most of us don't watch the news on, on a Saturday afternoon. And um, most people in um, the Nine Towers were not watching the news. Some of them were not home or were returning home. And some of them were just spending time on a Saturday with their families when um, the announcement was made um, unbeknown. And, a lot of how community found out was by the police and community members responding to each other. The response was pretty quick because of the relationships that we did have. And it meant that um, by Sunday already, um, we'd set up a base in AMSA, that donations were already coming in, that already there was a response in terms of the campaign and the media, there was a response in terms of legal support, um, there was responses in terms of like actually getting um, everyone's material needs to them. All the while, the, the local governments in the area and um, government as a whole had no plan of what they were going to do. And um, also 500 to 600 police with no clear chain of command and no um, government head that was actually leading the operation. So literally people with guns in deeply traumatized people's homes with no idea of what they were doing. On every single floor, yeah. And I think the ridiculous um, part of this was um, when we when we responded and the respond was so efficient, um, automatically what we found was that the the scrambling to regain control. So automatically being like, you know, we actually, uh, we have donations ready and we want to take canned goods. Our community really does not vibe with canned goods. Um, <laughs> we don't take scraps, we like fresh produce. Um, and they were really surprised by the complaints of a lot of Muslim people saying that they don't want ham. Um, it was, yeah, it was pretty atrocious. And our communities essentially were giving um, were giving choice to their own community about what they wanted to receive. So there was um, bulk orders, which is everything that we were giving um, that includes hand sanitizer, masks, um, just cleaning supplies in a pandemic, which ironically, when we got a list from the local council about what we should be putting in our packs, it did not include hand sanitizer. It didn't include masks and um, they 
uh, it included a lot of canned goods and in, um, and they told us that there was no reason that we should be putting in pads and tampons into the packs, um, which is ridiculous. So we had um, specialized orders as well for people, um, for meat, for um, diapers, for, um, for uh, what's it, baby formula, essentially everything that the community need. If they asked for it, they would receive it. But one of the things that's worth noting was because it was a police response and because there wasn't a clear chain of command, um, police officers downstairs had decided that they would go through special orders. So they would go through um, anything that we as um, volunteers brought or um, community members brought directly to their family members. So sometimes people would need condoms. Um, people, some people wanted alcohol, some people wanted cigarettes, um, some people wanted drugs because there was drug addicted people in the building that needed what they needed. Um, and essentially the police were going through um, everything and removing uh, things that weren't illegal um, and not allowing for it to go up. I think that when we talk about governments and the type of work that we're trying to do around, you know, um, intimate partner violence and we're doing um, the work we're doing around supporting people who are drug addicted, it's um, it was a massive slap in the face because what we had is people who were going through withdrawals and we had people who would, um, if facing domestic intimate partner violence or domestic violence, that were not receiving support um, and that had no way of leaving, that were locked up in their homes in exasperating circumstances. Um, so when I think about what the setup was for us, I think over and over again that our communities, if our communities didn't look after ourselves and each other and collectively didn't support each other, that we would be left at the hands of the people who seek to oppress us, who do oppress us and seek to harm us. Um, I don't think that um, that a community that had more resources would go through an experience like this and that the government would be so openly, um, clearly unplanned for what they did. I think it's really important to also talk about um, the conditions of um, overcrowding just after the lockdown um, that families that were larger were being able to be placed in houses, large houses um, outside of the um, the inner city area. But um, I also question would would they be relocated if it wasn't land like private homeowners not being able to pay their mortgage because of the COVID crisis. Um, the government was able to have negotiations in order to house people who um, who otherwise would not receive housing from private renters um, and obviously at a reduced, co like reduced cost as well. Um, yeah, in terms of paving the way forward, I also think about some of the responses that happened in terms of when post the hard lockdown, what was given to community funding and um, how it was given to us. The only avenues to receive it would be through the avenues that have always existed that did, that hasn't benefited us or very limitedly has benefited us up until now. So the all the roles that you'd see that pop up where community members were being hired as health concierges um, and to do programming and all of those things were within the same structures that have existed within the community. So these organizations um, that have been on the state for a very long time that community members have had problems with for such a long time 
us being forced to partner with them or work with them or work for them um, within their structures because that's where the money that was for our communities came through. But yeah, I'll leave it there because I feel like we'll talk a lot about things in the conversation. <laughs> Hello, um, my name is Whit Gauri. Um, I'd like to first acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people, and pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, and also acknowledge uh, when talking about these carceral processes and prisons that it's very central to colonisation and ongoing colonisation of this continent. Super stoked to be here. Well, I don't know why I'm here, but anyway. Stop it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I am a white trans social worker, um, abolitionist social worker, uh, and I've, I've worked supporting um, communities impacted by criminalisation for over 10 years. I started with Deb, actually, at Sisters Inside <laughs> in 2011, and I have learnt pretty much everything I know. Over the last couple of years, I've been involved in building a few different projects supporting trans and gender diverse people in prison and um, those returning to community and trying to keep people out. So I work, I have a project based at Flat Out called Beyond Bricks and Bars. Um, we have a little team there that um, supports yeah, trans people in Victorian prisons um, and back in the community. Um, and then also I sit on a committee um, called the Incarcerated Trans and Gender Diverse Community Fund, which is a mutual aid project that um, is nationwide and provides financial and material aid to trans people in prison and um, post-release payments and all sorts of different stuff. Um, so broadly speaking, you know, trans and gender diverse people, in particular Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and people of colour face frequent and significant abuse, racial and sexual violence, harassment and social exclusion. As a community, we, we experience homelessness, underemployment, family breakdown, complex mental health issues and isolation within the community at far higher rates than the cisgender population. These factors place trans and gender diverse people in the margins of society at times and at greater risk of criminalisation and imprisonment because of that marginalisation. Every form of discrimination that exists in our community is magnified and utilised by prisons to cause greater division and disarm solidarity. Disproportionately, those who are incarcerated are Aboriginal trans women, sister girls, trans women of colour, reflecting the ways in which racism, white supremacy, transphobia and misogyny intersect with criminalisation. Um, I ran a bit of a latest stat kind of check on the people that we support. So at the moment we support about 35 trans people and gender diverse people in the project. Um, and yeah, I was even just looking at, um, so I sort of looked at like key themes of, of the different people we work with experience and it all speaks volumes to these multiple forms of um, intersecting oppression and the ways in which people are criminalised and pipelined into this system. Um, so 85% of the people that we support are trans women or femme non-binary people. Um, of those people, 90% are placed in men's prisons. So trans women overwhelmingly are placed in men's prisons. Um, which is extremely high risk. Um, and the reality is that sexual violence, physical violence, psychological violence is, is you know, something that people are navigating every single moment that they're in there. Um, of the 10% that we work with that have been allowed to go to the women's prisons, um, they've all been placed in long-term solitary confinement. So that's 23 hours a day locked in a cell, no bigger than a small car park with an airing yard that is entirely fenced in. It's very reminiscent of a dog pound or a chicken coop. 
Um, and the mental health impacts of that, I can't even begin to speak to. It's so profound. Um, 20% of the people we currently support are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander trans people. 15% um, are people of colour, mostly from uh, Pacifica or Southeast Asian communities. 50% experienced homelessness or were in crisis accommodation before entering custody. Nearly 80% are exiting into homelessness. Um, over 50% have difficulties with substance use that led to criminalisation or compounded to criminalisation. 88% identify as having a mental health um, diagnosis, most commonly severe depression, anxiety, PTSD or complex PTSD. Um, all the people we support identify as having poor mental health. 40% identify as neurodivergent. 70% have limited to no family support. 85% were unemployed prior to custody. Um, of those who have disclosed, 85% of the people we support have experienced sexual violence, both while uh, in the community and in particular while inside um, for trans women placed in men's prisons. I don't think there's a single trans woman we work with who hasn't experienced some form of sexual violence in the men's prison. Um, so in terms of also another interesting thing is that 60% of the people that we work with um, have come out or attempted to access gender affirming support while inside. Um, and the vast majority of the people um, that I've spoken to link this um, Basically, they, they, there's a link between the lack of support and understanding as a contributing factor to criminalisation that a lot of the people we speak to say, you know, had they have had that support, they don't believe they would have ended up in this system and that it's all part of that pipelining. Um, and it also means that people are exiting prison as their firm gender for the first time, which is exciting, but also very, very terrifying for a lot of people um, and requires a whole um, you know, number of factors of, of managing safety and, and considering risk for the first time in a different way as a visibly trans person. Um, in terms of housing, you know, like I said, nearly 80% are exiting into homelessness, um, which is here, we already know the housing crisis, uh, incredibly difficult to find safe options um, that are appropriate and are going to ensure the safety, especially for trans women. Um, there's maybe one or two crisis housing services that I feel comfortable referring people to that have massive wait lists and the amount of, of people we support that are, are trying to get out on parole that can't because there is no housing options um, or the housing options they have aren't approved because their family are criminalised or various other factors. Um, I think, though, wanting to end on a positive note, you know, in terms of as a community, I think we often um, and we do have to imagine ourselves into existence and dream what we cannot see, but from, from fundamentally know within ourselves. And this is even more profound um, in the prison context that's founded in stripping away identity and human rights, um, which made reminded me of a, a quote from Angela Davis, um, which you know she speaks to that and says, um, I don't think we would be where we are today, encouraging even larger numbers of people to think within an abolitionist frame, had not the trans community taught us that it's possible to effectively challenge that which is considered the very foundation of our sense of normalcy. So if it's possible to challenge the gender binary, then we can certainly effectively resist prisons, jails and the police.
You're tuned to 3CR and we're hearing from Natalie Ironfield, Debbie Kilroy, Ruj Ahmedi, Idil Ali and Whit Gori in conversation at the Forum for Dwelling Justice held at the Capitol Theatre in Melbourne on Friday 26th of August. Thank you all of you. That was yeah, I think you've all given so much in terms of what you shared, and I'm so grateful for all of the work that each and every one of you um, does in the community. So we've got a little bit of time for discussion, and I wanted to kind of kick it off by coming back to this point that the struggle for housing justice and also for abolition must be underpinned by First Nations sovereignty um, and First Nations justice. And I think often like the systems that we work within, whether like that for me is often the academy, but also like government systems, other government systems, these very institutions have been designed to prevent self-determination and um, dispossess Indigenous peoples. So I'd really love to hear from all of you in terms of the work that you're doing in community um, how you try to navigate these barriers and how Indigenous sovereignty grounds the work that you're doing. In terms of dwelling justice, we, especially people who have worked in um, housing, whether in the non-for-profit sector or um, in government, uh, in service delivery, um, we create, you know, in, uh, you know, I know that David and Libby have um, spoken about this through their research. We create this false dichotomy that public uh, is uh, benevolent and then private is, you know, harsh and that we should all be pursuing um, public housing. In Victoria in particular, we have um, transferred into community housing, which is, uh, a, and then that sits under the umbrella of social housing. So a small portion on community and then most of the um, uh, housing stock is going to be run by non-for-profits. Uh, which often bar people who are coming out of prison. So people most in need of housing can't access a lot of community housing because of the kind of stipulations for um, that relationship. And as Idle has pointed out, uh, the Victorian government can also be one of the most harmful landlords that we have in the state as well, and much the same across other states. But that's the kind of context that we're living in, and that's the kind of false dichotomy that we're navigating. But essentially, dwelling justice and First Nations justice argues that actually uh, there is, you know, like you're just kind of transferring from one hand to the other of the same um, apparatus, which is the benevolent um, colonial state. And so how do we kind of step back uh, through my work, whether it's been through um, housing justice and my role as head of advocacy at Justice Connect or as a community organizer and activist. One of the key things is like, it's really not that complicated to show up and to think about the material contribution that you yourself make and to make that kind of contribution in a kind of meaningful way that you need to offer something of worth, but also to do the difficult task of communicating with your communities um, and having those difficult conversations and then getting them to show up in similar ways, really kind of democratizing the labor of building a movement behind um, First Nations sovereignty and justice. And so that's kind of one of the ways that I uh, do it. I don't think that it's 
as complicated as a lot of people seem. And I don't think, you know, I think there is like a wonderful um, power in acknowledging as um, people of color, like our material experience of racism. So it's kind of acknowledging the oppressions that you face, but also as settlers stepping into your power and being like, what do I have in my possession? What is in my toolbox that I could use in this context? So suddenly you're not seeing yourself purely through a deficit frame, but also thinking about what you can actually contribute. Um, and it all depends on your skill set and um, being connected and building those relationships and accountability. I think it's also like a reimagining, um, and that's what a lot of um, abolition is about, but this idea of, you know, we're currently being housed in terms of gov housing um, by by colonizers, right? And I think that a lot of the time what we do is um, we're taught um, and encouraged to be grateful um, and that if we weren't, we wouldn't be on this land if it wasn't for colonization is the thing that is being um, subconsciously put in our minds all the time. And um, for us, as we learn more about the frontier wars and as communities, as we deepen our connections, what we learn is that there was contact before, there was community before, um, and that we don't need colonizers to be the the connection and colonizers by virtue of what we need which is our freedom is that we can't have colonizers being the line of communication between our communities we need to have direct communication and i think that like when we think about gov housing being privatized and being sold off to um private entities like how could there be a conversation about treaty as that's happening so then us as a community we go okay well we're we're losing uh, our housing, we're being moved to the outer suburbs, we're moved to places where there isn't support services. So we have to stop for a moment and think about, okay, um, in what situation would this not be the case? And it'd be in a situation where there is sovereignty and that there's people who have looked after this land and looked after their communities um, for thousands of years and knowing that those people would extend and have during the hard lockdown and before and after that have extended um, that support and that understanding of what it is to, I remember during the hard lockdown, one of the things that um, what we're saying is like, this is very mission, like this is a reminder of how the missions work. Like, and I, for me, and for a lot of um, Afro-Black folk, the way that we um, learned how to organize on this land is through the organizing that mob do. Um, if it wasn't for worries of the original resistance, I really like genuinely don't know what my organizing would look like because, <laughs> we knew this isn't it. We knew with absolute certainty, every part of our hearts, um, every fiber of our being, this isn't it, but like, what is it? What are we calling for? And I think that a lot of these not-for-profits um, and a lot of, um, after the hard lockdown, when these not-for-profits saw the response and the amount of people, amount of community that galvanized together, amount of young people that galvanized together, now they're coming up with things in terms of like social justice and let's do like workshops and this, that, the other. Um, and for us as a community, it's your funders are the government. Are you going to push up against them? Um, is this underlined um, and is this upheld by by sovereignty, by what we're fighting for? Is this anti-colonial? And if it's not, then it actually doesn't benefit us. And I think that we're being indoctrinated as Afro-Black folk into um, multiculturalism and to better hide the colony. 
and that is in a benefit to us in the long term and it's not a benefit to us in the short term to be honest <laughs> yeah just going on from prisons as you know a central part of the colonial project and um you know one of the key aspects of prisons is displacing and warehousing people in addition to that aspects of, of ongoing colonization so is the gender binary um and that has been you know a part of and enforced um since we white people arrived um and we know that aboriginal and torres strait islander communities and indigenous people around the world have had very complex and diverse and varied gender identities and presentations for era, but that binary was was really enforced and continues to be and I think about that a lot in the context of my work. Um, I'm very fortunate in terms of I am a part of a black family and have uh, a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in my life, which means that I am very aware of accountability um, and very much pulled up at any moment that is necessary. And I'm very grateful for that. But I think it's a central part as a white person doing work in this space, being always very conscious um, of, and grateful for accountability and uh, being pulled up because, you know, otherwise I am just a part, continued part of, of this colonization of this continent. Um, and yeah, that's one of the things I think about a lot in my work. Mm. Yeah, I think just going on from, I suppose what I was sitting here thinking about, I'm thinking about a lot lately, um, and it's all about how it's interconnected. So a couple of years ago, um, we started the Free Her campaign to raise money to pay for Aboriginal women's fines in Western Australia, because if you got a fine and didn't pay it within usually 28 days, you would automatically, a warrant would be issued and you go to prison. And we know that Miss Do died the most horrific death. She was killed in the watch house and she was, um, the police were supposed to come to assist her um, because of violence that was being perpetrated against her. However, because she had a warrant that was worth about $3,300, the police arrested her and um, she died on that freezing cold concrete floor in a watch house in Western Australia. Um, so it was about releasing any woman, Aboriginal woman, that went to prison because of poverty, because she couldn't pay the fine, but also paying Aboriginal women's fines, Aboriginal women's fines in the community before the police actually arrested them on the warrant. And it's interesting how many white people, white saviours, I'm white, um, jumped on that campaign and it moved through the community across the country very quickly and around the world. But what's interesting that's happening now, I wonder where the white saviors are, because I'm trying to figure out what is it about us white fellas, why we will donate to have an Aboriginal woman released because of poverty, because of unpaid fines. But when we try to raise money, for example, for Aboriginal women to be trained and get employment that no one's interested in, in donating that. And I reckon that's about white supremacy, colonisation, white privilege, that really fundamentally in our core of being, we don't want Aboriginal women to have jobs and to be able to home, have a home and live next door to us. And that's an issue. 
and I'm calling that out today as I call out castle feminists because I know the castle feminists have more so recently um, banded together against not just a number of Aboriginal women across this country, but also myself and other white women who um, have called out um, as we oppose the criminalisation of coercive control because we know more Aboriginal women will be um, criminalised and imprisoned. So white fellas in the room, we need to dig deeper and to work out what it is, why we do that, with the save white saviour mentality, but we actually do not want to assist an Aboriginal woman to gain employment and have a regular paycheck and be able to live life like those of us do by having a roof over our head, food on the table and raise our children and grandchildren. And it's a fundamental core of our being, I believe, in this country of our racial supremacy um, that plays out in our being every day. I just want to add to what Deb said as well, where it's like a lot of the people who are, I would imagine, who are donating um, and that we've seen time and time again, if if people were being trained up from communities who have lived experience, um, it'd be they'd be in competition for their jobs. Um, essentially, like the jobs that a lot of um, allies, so-called allies, because I don't think it's true allyship if it's only to a certain point, a lot of the times the people with lived experience can do the job a lot better and a lot of the time it's too much competition so I think the amount of support that exists is only to a point that they remain we remain under um, white people and I think if there's any point like any time that I saw that so clearly was when the when the government was giving funding after hard lockdown they were giving it to organizations that previously um, and the structure was that community members would come in, but they would be below the white people that have always worked in these organizations. Um, and there would be a few cases where that wasn't the case, but most often it was that we would be under them, um, under their management and wouldn't be able to actually do the type of work that would truly benefit our community or transform our communities. Um, in addition to that, it meant that the, the money didn't go to the funding, the resources didn't go to smaller community groups that are able to do work that truly benefits us that would make these organizations obsolete. Um, so I just want to add to that. Thanks, um, I think you've touched on an important point that like decolonization, indigenous land justice should not be comfortable work for settlers. It should be unsettling. Um, if it's not, then it's probably not decolonization and it's probably just a thing that's making white people feel good and settlers feel good about themselves. Deb, you spoke briefly about the um, Sisters Inside Free Her campaign and I'm conscious that mutual aid is like such a big part of all of the work that you all do. So I would love, just before we finish up, if you could all maybe comment on the importance of mutual aid um, in building community but also in the struggle for abolition and housing justice. I think before anyone comments though, I know that a lot of us work in non-for-profits, but this isn't an invitation to co-op the notion of mutual aid. You see that more prevalent in the US, but definitely like whisperings of it. It's the same uh, misconstru misconstruction of intersectionality that's been embedded in Victorian government policy that completely removes it from the context of Kimberly Crenshaw's legal framework. Um, and so I don't want 
anyone to leave here and be like, I'm good. Like I'm going to get impacted by like a Dunning-Kruger effect where I heard some people talk about mutual aid and I'm now going to implement it. This is a moment if you haven't heard about it to just step back and just pause, listen. And I think that that is like a kind of re a respectful approach. But essentially mutual aid is about my liberation is connected to your liberation. Uh, this isn't just like a philanthropic pursuit. This isn't charity. I'm not subordinating you. I know that you have skills and I have skills and sometimes I'll rely on you and sometimes you'll rely on me. It's open dialogue, it's material exchange, and it's also um, very much about agency and self-determination, which is something that the state is very, very terrified about because it's happening out there. It's not regulated. Um, and I think the more that our communities can sort of uh, find resources, uh, understand the system better, educate each other, the more powerful um, it will be as not only a way to um, deal with the kind of material inequities that we face, but also um, be a place for political activism, which I think is another reason that um, the state is very terrified. Um, I was just going to speak to in terms of like mutual aid. So um, the incarcerated fund, for example, um, that was something that we, um, so the majority of the committee are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have either experienced incarceration, um, have family or friends incarcerated or are supporting people inside. And so when we started it, we reached out and got a, like, we, we got a lot of inspiration from the Free Her campaign and how that operated. And then we reached out to pay the rent and spoke to them about how they set up um, their sort of financial structure and got advice and just just thinking about all that shared learning and how much, um, yeah, like, like Rouge was saying, you know, that mutual aid is about an investment in community for all of us. And it's an actual, um, you know, belief of, of building the world that we all need. Um, and, you know, the fund has been something that, um, you know, we, we provide, we've provided support. I think we've paid over 120 payments since we started. It's like over 45 grand across the continent um, to trans and gender diverse people inside. And we do post-release payments so that people can, you know, buy clothes and ID. Um, we top up prison accounts so people can call their families. Um, we do uh, crisis payments when people need emergency housing so that our community isn't sleeping on the street, which happens all too often. Um, and it, you know, one of the things in doing it um, was being like, oh, we can just do, we can just do this because we have relationships, we have accountability to community, and we have the capacity to do it. And I think we often get really scared to, to experiment. And Mariam Carver talks a lot about this and, um, and reading any of her work, I would encourage you to, um, about the need for, for more and more experiments and more and more new ways of doing things and not being scared to try things and not being scared of failure but being accountable to failure and being accountable to the things that went wrong and then growing from that and learning from that. Um, and, you know, I think we've all worked in different experiments <laughs> and continue to work in different experiments. And that's the, the shit that's going to change stuff because we all of those little things are part of a much bigger puzzle um, where we're building that, that new world because this current one is you know, like, I don't even know how much longer we're, uh, <laughs> it's a bin fire. But, you know, in terms of like, it's that work that, I, like, I've talked about it a lot that, you know, I think it, the work sustains us. If you're doing good work, 
if it aligns with your values, um, then it's really it is really sustainable. Um, and especially when you're connected to such beautiful community, um, you know, it's a it's a privilege to do to do that kind of work. I think. Okay, just a little um, something that like well, as soon as the conversation about mutual aid came up a few years, well, it's always existed, but like hearing about it more mainstream and more often. I remember one of the things that came up for me was like, it's something that's really deeply embedded in my culture. Um, and it's something that like Somali people do heavy. Um, and the fact that we even had a, a base to respond to the hard lockdown was because AMSA was built by community funds and the community made a, an intentional decision to not take any government funding or any type of funding. Um, ironically, now we have cameras in there because surveillance state and everywhere has cameras. Um, and unfortunately, Sometimes you push and then sometimes other people let people in. So this is just part of the process. Um, but essentially the community raised funds for it and our community, it was like over a million dollars was raised for building a space for the community to come together um, as a place of worship, but also as a place for community um, like activation and people being able to come together and do workshops and do trainings. And um, it's not actualized in the way that been previously planned and it's still in progression, but our communities before the internet existed went door to door and till now and it has to do with relationships and I think that even when we contribute to um, mutual aid I know that when I contribute when I see it's something that WIT does you know like automatically I'm like okay this is somebody I know and I know how the funds are going to be used like I don't know the complete breakdown but I know it's going to be used well you know and I, I think that listen <laughs> I know you're kind we of love like a complete breakdown <laughs> um but I I really feel like um for us, it's like, and then similar within community, it's like, um, we have tribes, <laughs> we have, and you donate based off of relationality, like the closer you are um, in terms of blood and, and tribe, like the more responsibility you have to give more. Um, and sometimes even if it's in your suburb or like your neighbors and um, and if the further away you still give something, you just don't give as much. If, and if you can afford to give more, you give more. And I think that like it's better in our cultural practice, but also in our faith practice. And I think it's really important that like when we're learning things as communities, that we're not learning them as brand new and that we really commit to the practice of remembering and not acting like things are brand new and also seeing what relationship we have to a certain practice. Um, I think obviously because of the movement of some of our communities, we haven't been able to retain all of our cultural practices, but even the ones that we do have, our young people are not able to name it because they can't see it in relation to what they're seeing in front of them right now. Like, uh, especially when, yeah, like I think it's, it's hard when we center whiteness to be able to see um, what other communities are doing as similar to ours. Like, I think that we have to get a lot of the time it requires us to get validation from whiteness for the thing that we've been doing since the beginning of time. And that's what we're pushing up against. Just briefly thinking about this, about our connection, community, relationships with each other, mutual aid, whatever you want to call it, but about building community and strength and um, dreaming of another way to live for us all. And when I say us, I mean those of us that can't even be in this room or online. I think of um, Annie Little Watson, who's now an Aboriginal elder who resides in Mianjin and other group of Aboriginal people back in the 70s. And they wrote these words and they, I think they um, are very powerful and um, can bring meaning into this conversation now. 
And they said, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound with mine, let us work together. I think that's a great note to finish up on. So yeah, thanks everyone for all you've given. We just heard from Natalie Ironfield, Debbie Kilroy, Ruch Ahmedi, Idil Ali and Wit Gori in conversation at the Forum for Dwelling Justice at the Capitol Theatre in Melbourne on the 26th of August. The forum was organised by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research and supported by the International Journal of Housing Policy, the Renters and Housing Union and 3CR. Tune to 3CR at the same time next week for more conversations from the Forum for Dwelling Justice. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.